everybody, it's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're back with just the zoo of us. Another hot and spicy episode of your favorite warm discourse podcast. <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That all of what, five seconds? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. That was a joke. <laughs> this will be the first and last time worms are mentioned in this episode. Okay. So if you're here because of that, I apologize. If you're not here because of that, I also apologize, <laughs> but if you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say worm discourse, then I deeply, deeply envy you, and I highly advise you to keep it that way. All right. <laughs> this is an animal podcast. It is. <laughs> so we are, in actuality, we are your favorite animal review podcast where we take species of animals and we review them and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and, of course, my personal favorite, aesthetics. We are not zoological experts. We try to get information from reliable sources, including experts on topics. We do. We spend a lot of time doing our research and we make sure that it's good. Normally, I put up a poll on our social media platforms every week, but it's been a really weird week, and so I didn't do that this week. Sorry. Yeah. We handpicked both of our species this week. Yeah. I'd say I dropped the ball, too, but I didn't even pick it up. So. <laughs> you never had it to begin with. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It was supposed to be my responsibility, but this has been a really weird social media week, so I didn't do it. Sorry. That's okay. I appreciate the freedom, shall we? Go for it, babe. It's your turn. You're up first this week. Okay. So this week, I bring us Golden Moles, which was requested by Cassandra Martin and Miranda Lowry. Excellent suggestion. Yeah. But it was also part of a poll back in February that lost to the Fennec Fox. Oh, yeah. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. So this was a, this is a second chance. <laughs> <laughs> so right off the bat, uh, Golden Mole actually refers to a family Okay. Uh, specific species. So that family is Chrysochloridae. It consists of 21 different species, all golden moles. Are they all pretty similar to each other or are they very diverse? They have all the same anatomy basically, but with little differences here and there. Interesting. Yeah. So I'll be getting my information for this from the IUCN Afrotheria Specialist Group, found at www.afrotheria.net, and that's spelled a-F-R-O-T-H-E-R-I-A. Very good. So, little moles. I think a lot of people have some idea of what we're talking about when we say mole. Now, see, I learned just pretty recently, actually, like within the last few years, hmm. that moles are much smaller than I thought they were. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, that's one statistic i don't have in my notes that's okay but, <laughs> but like, they are pretty small they're like smaller than like the palm of your hand sure they're little i used to think they were like cat sized no not no. even close no they're little dudes yeah no since we are talking about a family there is a bit of a range here of sizes but around that magnitude we'll say that little guys it's yeah. like a mouse maybe sure but not rodents Oh, they're not rodents. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've already learned something. But I'll get into that later. So I just want to talk about what they look like real quick. So moles are mammals. These moles, some species have golden fur. That's mm. the name. It varies from black to pale tawny yellow. Their fur has an iridescent sheen of coppery gold, green, purple, or bronze on the fur. It's so good. The coloration is different based on the species. It's shimmering almost. Yeah. Like in the light, it just, when the light gets it just right, you get just a little, a little mini rainbow. Uh -huh. It's really good. 
Their bodies are lozenge shaped. What? <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> like a throat lozenge? I think that. I'm feeling like there are much. <laughs> there are much. Uh, you could say cylindrical, capsule-like, kind of like that. I don't know. Football-shaped, maybe. Is sure. what I'm thinking of. Yeah, around that. So when you say a lozenge, yeah, like there are a few different shapes those could <laughs> come in, right? <laughs> like this is a really, really bizarre descriptor. <laughs> That's the one my source used. Elliptical, maybe. I don't know. Oval. <laughs> they have pick-like claws on their front legs and webbed back feet. Webbed? Yeah. Are they doing a lot of swimming? No. Oh. I'll, I'll mention what they're used for later. Okay. And these moles have no external eyes, ears, or tail. Skip them. Don't need them. <laughs> <laughs> Extra bits. And they have a leathery nose pad. Oh. Yeah. So that's what they look like. They are found in sub-Saharan Africa, where they are endemic, mostly southern Africa. They're found in forests, woodlands, grasslands, and semi-deserts. And this all depends on the species, really. Okay. But quite, a, quite some variation there. You know, when you said that they don't have ears, eyes, or a tail, that I now really get what they mean by lozenge shape. As in, it is the shape of the, there it is. The, the shape of the lozenge and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> well, a little nose poking out in front, but... Yeah, and little feet, yeah. but other than that... <laughs> yeah. Little cute upturned nose. Oh. It makes me think of the uh, the who's from Dr. Seuss things. Oh, yeah. Like in, in the live action, the Jim Carrey Grinch movie. Yeah. How they have the little noses that poke up in the air. Or the wildly popular Mike Myers Cat in the Hat movie. <laughs> <laughs> is wildly popular the word we want to use It is for with that? me. <laughs> masterpiece. <laughs> okay. Moving on. I will not comment on that. <laughs> I want to talk about their taxonomy, which I found particularly interesting, which I don't come across very often, <laughs> being interested by taxonomy. <laughs> You're going to rile up the taxonomy community. <laughs> Please don't bring the heat down on me. Not again. So like I mentioned... They belong to the Christochloridae family, which consists of the golden moles. And that name is derived from Greek, and it means green gold, which refers to the kind of iridescent coloration of its fur. Huh. They belong to the order Aphrosaurisida, means looking like African shrews. This is, um, that's a great descriptor if you know what an African <laughs> shrew looks like. Yeah. Now, they, that order also contains, in addition to golden moles, otter shrews which are from equatorial Africa, and Tenrex, which are from Madagascar. Mmm, I know of these small dudes. Yeah, they're pretty interesting, too. They um, are. Some of them actually resemble hedgehogs. <laughs> I like them. <laughs> now, the golden moles are different from some of the other moles out there. So there are two other kind of groupings of moles, and those are the true moles and the marsupial moles. Marsupial moles? Yes. Are they marsupials? They are. Whoa, okay. So the true moles, which an example of that would be a European mole or a star-nosed mole, which you may have seen pictures of on the internet, the crazy nose. Unwillingly, yes, I've seen pictures of them. <laughs> they belong to a completely different order and family. Okay. Um, same with the marsupial moles that are from Australia. They're even more distantly related. Yeah, marsupials split off from other mammals uh -huh. like millions and millions of years yeah. ago. So they're actually more related like, to other marsupials than they are to golden moles, for example. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I didn't even realize there were like marsupial moles, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. But I can see that now, now that you say that. Like, yeah. 
Because the other moles are placental animals, right? Well, maybe you didn't know that, but now you do. So yeah, interesting taxonomy going there. So we have what we call moles in different parts of the world, but they are not related very much at all. This is the problem that you get into with common names. <laughs> well, they develop a lot of features that are similar, um, but we've talked about that before. Was that convergent evolution, mm-hmm. right? Where we have mammals in these different parts of the world that develop similar features. And for similar reasons, yeah. but they're just not related to each other. But a good example of why of what makes them different from other moles, like the European moles, the true moles, they have tails, their claws look a little different. And plus, I think they actually have eyes that are externally facing. It's just... I think they do. Yeah. They're just yeah. teeny tiny. Yeah. Okay. Effectiveness. I'm going to go with a 9 out of 10 for effectiveness. That's really good. Yeah. That's a good guy. They have a lot of things going for them. And for those tuning in for the first time or for those that want a refresher, effectiveness means physical attributes that help them do things that they do. <laughs> is this one doing a lot of digging? I think of moles, yes, I think of digging. It is. It does. And it has a lot of things that help it do that. So first up, it's fur. Its fur is very soft and iridescent. Mm, that makes me want to uh, touch it. <laughs> it's good at repelling moisture and it's also a good insulator. And of course, digging. Uh, their feet have, have a lot to do with this, of course. So on their front feet, the fifth digit, what we would attribute to a thumb, mm-hmm. is no longer there. Goodbye. <laughs> the outside digits of the four that remain are smaller. And then the two middle ones have kind of evolved into like pick-like claws. Oh. Yeah. Okay. There's a Pokemon that looks a lot like this. <laughs> the That's that mole steel type. Excadrill? Yeah. Excadrill. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. They've really <laughs> uh, trimmed the biological fat with their evolution, haven't they? They've really just been like thumbs. Don't need them. Eyes and ears, don't need them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just get rid of them. <laughs> so it's really interesting. They have these like pick-like claws on the two middle fingers that are really great for breaking up dirt, of course, to dig sure. through. And then some of the species amongst the golden moles, they have webbed back feet, which helps them push dirt. So like the front the front are breaking up dirt, the back are pushing the dirt. Pushing it like backwards. Yeah, behind them. Okay. Yep. So like kind of like swimming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. swimming through dirt. <laughs> Basically. Uh, their sight, not great, of course. Uh, they don't have eyes. They do have eyes. Oh, no. I'm they wrong. Are, they are not external eyes. What? <laughs> yeah, so their eyes are covered by skin. Why? <laughs> That's so bad. Yeah. So they they do have eyes, but they're covered by skin and fur. What not, is the point? And I'm not and I'm not talking about eyelids. It's just skin. <laughs> sure, no division there. Yeah, it's yeah. just eyelid. <laughs> yeah. So the thought is that maybe they can tell between light and dark, like how you can probably tell the same with your own eyes closed. But that's mm-hmm. about it. That's such a waste of perfectly good evolution. I bet <laughs> looking at the golden moles like, look at you. You ruined perfectly good eyeballs. We have these extremely complex organs for <laughs> sight. And then they're like, no, actually just patch that one right up. Oh, well. <laughs> you know what this reminds me of? What? This reminds me of that thing that a lot of people did in like the middle of the 20th century where they had these beautiful hardwood floors in these old houses Mm -hmm. and then they like tiled over them with like cheap linoleum Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) you know what i'm talking about that's what it reminds me of okay so 
eyesight maybe not too big because most of these species of golden mole will spend pretty much all of their time underground. So maybe not that useful to have anyway. I get yeah. Uh, their hearing is pretty interesting. Some species have a highly developed middle ear that gives them sensitivity to underground vibrations and airborne sounds. Huh. Yeah. So they're like feeling sounds? Well, they have ear canals, but they don't have external ears. It's more like an ear hole. Okay. Yeah. But it is like a an orifice of some sort. Yeah. Like yeah. there's an opening. I mean, it's heavily covered by fur, but yeah, it's there. Huh. Very strange. So this goes along with that whole streamlined aesthetic, right? Sure. I guess if you're going to be tunneling through tight spaces, like mm-hmm. you're going to be shimmying through narrow tunnels underground you don't want things that could get snagged sure like in the dirt like you want to kind of reduce your drag yeah, yeah. what's what's the word for being hydrodynamic but in dirt instead of water <laughs> i don't know <laughs> dirt dynamic <laughs> i did learn a word that describes something that describes dirt that can be dug through what's that or, or broken apart what's that friable friable yes that's not what i would have guessed that would have meant <laughs> right Based on the word. (laughs) And my final point for effectiveness is their low metabolic rate. Mm. Combined with efficient renal functions, their metabolic rate makes it so that they have a reduced water requirement. Uh, So much so that most species do not need to drink. Like at all? Right. So they'll get moisture from their food. Okay. What kind of food are they eating? Insects, mostly. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, all right. Yep. I'll touch on that here in a moment. I guess that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You said they live in the deserts, right? Some do. Okay. But others are in like woodlands and grass plains and stuff. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Very cool. Our next category is ingenuity, which describes some smart biz. Clever things. <laughs> yeah. Strategies. Pro strats. Yeah. I'll give this one a 7 out of 10. Okay. ingenuity. Decent. Yeah. So first of all, they are cryptic and trap shy. Trap shy? Yes. What does trap shy mean? They are hard to trap. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's mainly because of where they live and where they're usually found, right? Sure. Because you can't, what, put a dirt trap or something? <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea how you would go about trapping an animal that lives in the dirt. Well, the crazy thing is these things are so hard to find. At least one of these species is only known of because it, its remains were found in owl pellets. Oh, so owls know where they are. We need to team up with the owls. (laughs) We need to form some sort of allegiance so that the owls can take us to the moles. Yeah. They have specialized case-selected life history strategies. So they'll give birth to one or two at a time, and they have to be taken care of, of course. So case selection is that sort of dynamic where you don't have very many babies, but mm-hmm. you put a lot of effort into the babies that you have. Yes. Um, as opposed to our selective where you have lots of babies and just kind of wish them the best. And <laughs> if, you're, you're, if you're even alive for when they are. <laughs> right. It's like, so the way I think of it is like for our selective, I think mm-hmm. of R for being like for a rodent maybe or like bugs or frogs or something where like you're going for numbers yeah (laughs) you're thinking like well most of you are probably gonna die so i'm just going to make enough of you that yes most of you will get eaten but at least some of you are gonna survive to adulthood sure whereas the opposite of that would be more like larger mammals You, you see it more in like larger animals where like you you'll have just maybe one or two babies yeah. at a time, but you really invest a lot into making sure that baby makes it to adulthood. True, true. So continuing on ingenuity, they are opportunistic insectivores. 
They eat earthworms, termites, and millipedes, but that can vary by their habitat with the species, of course. Oh, you made a liar out of me at the beginning when I said that would be the last time we mentioned worms. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Most species build semi-permanent tunnel systems with two tiers. So the top level for foraging and the lower level for resting and raising young. Whoa. Yeah. They've got a little dirt palace. Right. Under the, they have a dirt estate <laughs> that they've built. Now, I did say that's the case for most. There are a couple outliers. The Namib golden mole, also known as the shark of the dunes. Shark of the dunes. Yes. And he's like three inches <laughs> long. Swims through <laughs> desert sands to find termite nests. Whoa. Yeah. That's really cool. <laughs> I love that imagery that that's conjuring up. I have a feeling this might have been the specific one people were asking for, but I'm not certain. Is it the little pale golden colored one that's really cute? I think it's the one that, that like popped out of some sand. <laughs> yeah. It's so cute. <laughs> and other species will forage on the surface. So they're meant for digging, but they'll still come up to the surface to forage. Horrible. <laughs> like, why spec that much into maneuvering <laughs> underground when it's like, oh, except to survive, I have to come out of the ground sometimes. Yes, you do what you got to do. Shameful. So that wraps up ingenuity. And our final classification or score is aesthetics. Pretty self-explanatory how cute they are. I'm going to say nine. This is a good one. Nine out of ten. They're so cute. They're very cute. The claws are a little off-putting. Don't just don't worry about the claws. <laughs> and I don't know, there's just something deeply off about seeing a mammal with no eyes, right? It is very strange because it has <laughs> the rest of the components of the face. So you expect Mostly, there to be yeah. eyes there. Sure, sure. And sure. then they're not there. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a dream where like, oh, the fur is covering her eyes. Let me just search for the Oh no, they're not here. <laughs> But they're so, I mean, they look like a little, little, it's like a little furry jelly bean. <laughs> Basically, yeah. They're so good. And they're shimmery, too. Like, the, the when you get the light on their fur and it just shines. They're so pretty. <laughs> yeah. So, that wraps up aesthetics. Very good. Just some miscellaneous information to wrap it up. I want to talk about their conservation status. So, I mentioned there are 21 different species that are golden moles. Three of those species are listed as data deficient. Oh. The others range from least concerned to critically endangered. Oh, no. Yes. So lots of variants based on the specific species there. Sure. Oh, bless these yeah. critically endangered golden moles. The main threats are loss of habitat from agriculture, infrastructure, urbanization, and quartzite mining. Quartzite? Yes. I don't know what that is. Oh, like like Q-U-A. R-T-Z-I-T-E. Z-I-T-E. Okay. Yes. I thought you meant court site, like the site of a court of no. some kind. <laughs> yes. Tennis courts. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming for you, tennis community. <laughs> and I also wanted to talk about where I got my sources from. So you may have heard me mention the term Afrotheria. Mm-hmm. Afrotheria refers to seven groups of African mammals that have little superficial resemblance to each other. And these are elephants, sea cows, Hyraxes, the aardvark, and sengis, or elephant shrews, and the golden moles and tenrex. So it refers to those specific groups. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, my source, their mission statement is the IUCN SSC, which stands for Species Survival Commission, 
So the IUCN SSC Afrotheria Specialist Group facilitates the conservation of hyraxes, the aardvark, elephant shrews, or singhis, golden moles, tenrecs, and their habitats by, one, providing sound scientific advice and guidance to conservationists, governments, and other interested groups, two, raising public awareness, and three, developing research and conservation programs. Okay, I like yeah. them. That's good. Go check out Afrotheria. Yeah, they're very interesting. Lots of uh, field experts involved in that group. Ah, oh, that's so good. <laughs> that's the, they they chose some interesting animals to focus on. Well, here there's there's an interesting thought process in it, and it was a little complex for me to understand. But the idea is that these orders they're so different from others, that, but they're not very big. So it wouldn't take very many species being extinct to completely wipe out a whole order. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Yes. They're kind of like unique. Just getting rid of millions and millions of years of history and evolution there. Yeah. Oh, bless them. Yep. These poor golden moles. I just <laughs> love them so much. They're just so cute. Yeah. I like the idea of just getting rid of parts of the body that you just don't need anymore. <laughs> You're like, this is not doing me any good. Goodbye. I oh. don't need a tail. <laughs> well, they, so yeah, we mentioned they don't have an external tail, but they do have the vertebra of what was once a tail. Sure. Inside them. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times when you see animals that have vestigial yes. remnants of limbs that they no longer have, like when you look at their skeleton, you'll see where those parts are used to be and now are no longer so like like oh, in, yeah. in a lot of snakes you can see a little vestigial little feet huh. where they used to have feet and they don't have them anymore very cool yeah that's really interesting good job babe this is a good animal thank you welcome we are able to continue making this podcast because of support from our friends on patreon this week i want to thank our patrons jacob jones april Kamek, brianna feinberg jacob schick vikram balika brandon everfolly dalton weeks christina sanders sarah peterson and the jungle gym queen thanks y'all all right hun what do you bring us this week this week i want to talk to you about the red-bellied piranha Ooh, snappy boy <laughs> it is this is a fish who crunches <laughs> this species was not submitted sorry guys <laughs> nobody asked me to talk about piranhas i just wanted to <laughs> it's been a long week <laughs> i needed to do this for me no worries i'm getting my information from the smithsonian's national zoo as well as the georgia aquarium where oh, we have cool. seen piranhas yes many a time we've actually seen this exact exact piranha this oh. exact type of piranha so yeah i'll just introduce you to this red-bellied piranha their scientific name is pygocentris naturari okay so this piranha is around six to eight inches long which is 15 to 20 centimeters for metric listeners that's not that big it's like about a little little bigger than your hand sure. maybe you will find these in south america all throughout these low elevation areas of the Amazon River Basin. So they can be found in either flowing streams or in still ponds. Because, you know, the Amazon River, it's not like one river, right? There's like all these little branching off mm -hmm. um, little streams and ponds and lakes and stuff. So you can kind of find them all throughout that whole area. And it changes drastically, right? Based on the rainy season and the, the tide and all that stuff. Yeah, like there's a lot of, it's kind of a living, <laughs> the whole <laughs> river is alive. But you can find piranhas all throughout there. Um, their taxonomic family is called Sarasalmidae, 
And this is the family that includes other types of piranhas, as well as paku and silver dollars. Have you ever seen a silver dollar? I don't think so. You can get them at PetSmart. (laughs) I know that because I used to work there. (laughs) I worked there for a while and you could get, you could go there and get little silver dollars. I did not know at the time that they were relatives of piranhas. The Paku, of course, is the... Yes, I do have a note in here about the Paku. Um, (laughs) Just a quick, quick little side note about the Paku is that those are the fish that are, they get really big. Uh They can get to be like four feet long and they have really creepy human teeth and I hate that a lot. (laughs) It's really bad now, it's only some sp- specific species of paku that have the teeth right i think so i don't i didn't look too far into the paku but it's creepy sure. i really didn't want to spend a lot of time looking at them that's understandable so didn't. <laughs> you can also so paku are also very popular in like pet private uh aquarists and such sure. like a lot of people have just have paku i don't care for them because of the human teeth aspect but <laughs> listen that's not what i'm talking about today so there are actually lots of different types of piranhas mm. it's all throughout this family um but the tax <laughs> the taxonomy in this family is actually it's really complicated but it's also really boring so i'm not gonna go into it sure. <laughs> basically like lots of things have the the title of being a piranha i don't really the criteria of what what counts as a piranha are not very solid sure now a lot of piranhas are vegetarian this one is more omnivorous it tends towards carnivorous but it will kind of take what it can get when it gets hungry so that's your introduction to a piranha i oh i didn't say this with a freshwater fish I mean, I don't know if that needs to be said. Sure. <laughs> they live in rivers, which are fresh water, not salt mm. water. Um, so first of all, I'm going to give them an effectiveness score of 8 out of 10. Uh, we'll just get right into their teeth. I know that's what you want to hear about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you first look at a piranha when it's just chilling, it's just swimming around, not eating or doing anything, it doesn't look very intimidating it doesn't look like oh my gosh that's a piranha you know like if if you're not already very familiar with them they have this sort of round it's like a flattened football shaped body it's like you know you know how you know what fish look like it's like that they're covered in these gray and bright silver scales and then their underbelly is yellow or red and they their face is like thick it's like a chunky face. Yeah. And they have these big, thick lips. And the lips cover their teeth. So when they're just swimming around, like idly, you don't see their teeth. They mm. don't look that scary. But behind those lips are two. So, so one, one row on the top, one row on the bottom, two rows of razor sharp, triangular teeth. Yeah. And they're angled inward, like towards the inside of the mouth for a better grip. And also the the lower jaw sticks out much farther than the top jaw. Mm-hmm. So the upper and lower teeth interlock with each other. So like they're windowed in such a way that it can totally close its mouth. They also, so the reason why their face is so chunky, like their whole sort of front whole portion of their head looks very like f- almost like fat sure um it's muscle 
Ah. It's all just muscle. Their faces are just buffed out with just muscles. And the muscles are connected to their bottom jaw. So they can get just like a ridiculous amount of force with their jaw. They have like some of the strongest bite force for their size of like any animal. I saw a lot of like studies comparing its bite force to like dinosaurs, to like T-Rex and stuff. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) For their size, of course. You know, like it's not going to be pound for pound. Like, you know, it's not going to be putting out the same amount of, I don't know, what do you call that? PSI (laughs) as a T-Rex, obviously, because they're little, but some serious bite force in those jaws. And they can, and sometimes they do, just eat straight up bone. Like, just chomp right on through it. Okay. They're extremely strong. Very, very not to be trifled with. And their teeth are insanely sharp. And their teeth are pretty big, too. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe when you're thinking of, like, a fish's tooth. Like, lots of fish have teeth, sure. But... A lot of times they're really tiny. They mm. might be little itty bitty. These are these are big teeth. Yeah. I don't have like stats on how long <laughs> their teeth are, but they're significant. Yeah. But what's interesting about the teeth is that on each side of each jaw, all of the teeth together are locked together into one unit. Mm. So when new teeth on that side of the face, so let's say, for example, we're talking about the bottom jaw on the left side. Mm -hmm. So it's got bottom left teeth growing in. Once those bottom left teeth are ready to erupt out of the gums, they push out all of the teeth on the bottom left all at once together. Oh, Yes. So it loses all of the teeth on that side of its face at the same time. But there's the new teeth underneath. Sure. So it kind of helps them never be in the sort of situation where they've lost all of their teeth. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just like they'll lose them in sort of these phases uh, based on like quadrants of their face. That's interesting. I thought that was pretty cool. That's pretty interesting. Now, are they connected to each other or are they still individual teeth that just... They're lost at the same time. They're still individual teeth, Mm. but they grow in such a way where they cannot be separated from each other. Oh, okay. They're kind of like locked together. Okay. I think I, okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Very strange. (laughs) But so you might see one that has like all of its bottom left teeth are like just little nubs because the new ones have come in. Sure. The things that I was reading about this like tooth losing process said that the new teeth wear the old teeth as a hat until they're ready to come in. And I thought that was a really weird way of saying it, (laughs) but it was kind of funny. (laughs) And I got the point across. So like that's effective science communication. (laughs) Uh, The next thing I want to talk about is their perception. So they live in these rivers, something common with like living in rivers and and streams and stuff is that a lot of times that water gets murky. Mm -hmm. So piranhas locate their prey mostly through smell. They have a really good sense of smell. So they can smell things around them and help them navigate the waters that way. But like other fish, we've talked about a few other fish, but we haven't talked about this. They have what's called a lateral line system. Have you heard of this? Does this have to do with like electromagnetism or something? Uh, Yeah, sort of. Okay. So they have this line all the way down the middle of either side of their body. Okay. And it is all these tiny little sensory organs in a straight line from head to tail on either side, left and right. Mm -hmm. And these little tiny sensory organs pick up on either movement in the water around them. 
So they can tell like if the water is changing flow um, or it can even pick up vibrations from sounds. So they can sort of, they can't like hear, but they can pick up on vibrations around them. So they can tell if something's moving in the water nearby. Okay. So those are kind of different ways that they perceive their environment. I thought that was pretty good. Next up, I'm going to move on to ingenuity. And I actually think ingenuity is kind of where the piranha shines. All right. Yeah. I also gave them an eight out of 10 for ingenuity, which for a fish, a lot of this stuff really surprised me because I don't think you usually think about ingenuity in fish, but this one is very, very interesting. So another thing that a lot of people probably already know about piranhas is that the, well, this piranha in particular is that it it is a social fish. So it is most comfortable in groups. And the groups that they live in are called shoals, S-H-O-A-L-S, shoals. And these shoals are usually around 20 to 30, like ideally around 20 to 30 other piranhas. Wow. So this made me think, like, why do they call it a shoal and not a school? Because I've always just heard that school is like the plural of fish. Not necessarily. There's a difference between a school and a shoal. I didn't know this. So a shoal is kind of looser. It's a gathering of fish that are all hanging out together, but they're all doing their own individual thing. Like some of them might be foraging, some of them might be looking for a mate, some of them might be just they're they're all nearby and they're all together and like it could even be like different species all hanging out together, huh. like part of one big shoal. But like they're all chilling together, but not coherently. They're just sharing space, basically. Mm. A school is when all of the fish are moving as one coherent sort of unit. Huh. So all of the fish are moving in the same direction. They're turning in the same direction at the same time. This is what, like, when you see those big sort of tunnels of fish, and they're all moving as though they were one giant fish, mm-hmm. that's what a school is. See those, like, anchovies or stingrays? Yeah, like, that's a school where they're kind of all acting as one unit. But piranhas yeah. don't do that. They're they're hanging out together but they're definitely doing their own thing individually. So this okay. is a, a shoal. Oh, and the purpose of that whole like schooling behavior where they act like they're all one big animal is to confuse a predator. Right. So like a, a predator could come to take a chomp out of a fish. It sees what looks like one giant fish and could be like, oh, I, I don't want none of that. <laughs> and leave. <laughs> so while this tendency to hang out in these packs of multiple other piranhas has kind of earned them this reputation for being ferocious pack hunters, it's not a predatory function, this shoal behavior. This is actually more for their own safety. Mm. So there was this study in 2005. It's called Safety in Numbers, Shoaling Behavior of the Amazonian Red-Bellied Piranha. It was by Helder Kairos and Anne E. McGurin. And this showed that in wild piranhas, they were much less stressed and much less fearful of predators when they were in larger shoals. So Mm. the bigger their group, the less stressed out they were. If they were with like a lot of other piranhas, they felt pretty good. If they weren't with very many piranhas, they were very jittery and very anxious and very easily stressed out. But if there were a lot of piranhas nearby, they felt pretty good. They felt okay. So what was cool about this is that when they were exposed to simulated attacks from a predator, the ones that were in larger groups would get over it quickly and return to their resting activities. So they would be like, oh my gosh, there's a predator. All right, it's fine. The threat's gone. And then they would go back to just like foraging and eating or whatever they were doing. So this lets them kind of just more quickly move on 
and not have to spend so much time panicking over predators. Mm-hmm. So like it lets them sort of maximize the efficiency of their time to be spending time in these large groups. Interesting. Yeah. And they're not using that for hunting because like each one is doing its own sort of like foraging and hunting and stuff. If there is like a large prey that multiple ones could grab, then yeah, they're going to come grab it. But they're not like working together to all hunt as a unit or something. Right. So it's really just more to make them feel better. (laughs) (laughs) And also what's cool is that during times of the year when the water is more shallow, when they're more like vulnerable to attacks from things like birds and stuff, they will actually form larger groups when the water is shallower. So they're a little more safe. They're getting a little more protection from numbers when the water's shallow and they're more vulnerable. I guess that would also make sense in that they have less space. Yeah. So they're going to kind of all be crowded into the same area. Uh, The next thing that I wanted to talk about for their ingenuity is that, and this is not something that I don't think I've ever considered for a fish at all, red-bellied piranhas vocalize to communicate. They make noise. (laughs) Specifically, they bark. Really? Yes. So they're able to contract these muscles that create vibrations against their swim bladders. Whoa. And this makes a barking sound. Weird. It's so weird. It is like super hard to find a video of though. Oh, you don't want to imitate it, hon? (laughs) Hold on. We got puppy down here. Maybe I can get her to bark. (laughs) She doesn't bark anyway. snoring right now i know you might be able to hear it hope you don't sorry (laughs) so they actually have they have three different types of barking sounds that they make at each other and they mean slightly different things okay so like they use different vocalizations in different contexts with each other although all of their vocalizations are to communicate with each other these are not things to like intimidate a predator or like i don't know do something with prey. These are all to mean things to other piranhas. Mm. Um, Mostly they're kind of like warning signals. They're like, hey, I'm walking here. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, like back off, this prey is mine. Or they're they're just kind of using it to like indicate to each other, like, hey, this is my space. Leave me alone. Not not my space, the website, which is defunct, I'm sure. (laughs) Thanks for that specification. I thought maybe people might think I was talking about piranhas on MySpace. And so they so they use these sounds to just kind of communicate with each other so that they can reduce like infighting with each other. And I got that information from a study called Sound Production in Red-Bellied Piranhas, an acoustical, behavioral, and morphofunctional study by Sandy Milo, Pierre Van de Waal, and Eric Parmentier. Yeah, so that was a cool study. It was very interesting. The next thing I want to talk about for ingenuity is actually parenting behavior. Really? Also something we don't hear about in fish a lot, I think. So a piranha mom will lay her eggs on like aquatic vegetation. And then after dad comes by and fertilizes the eggs, both of the parents defend the nest. So they will swim in these circles around each other, which makes a really cool little like display where they kind of tightly like swim in sort of a yin-yang sort of pattern. They'll swim in a circle around each other and then they'll kind of just like patrol the area to keep other stuff away um, from the eggs until the eggs hatch, which only takes a couple days. But still the piranhas will, will 
chill out in that area and make sure that nothing messes with their with their eggs. So laying the eggs in vegetation gives the young fish a place to hide once they hatch. So when they hatch in their tiny little baby fish, they're like ready to go. They're still little. They're vulnerable to predators. But um, they, it gives them, they can hide in the grass and hide in the leaves and stuff. So Aww. I think they do a pretty good job setting their little baby piranhas up. <laughs> you know, a lot of other fish really don't go the extra mile like that. A lot of fish are just like, best of luck, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> so piranhas are, are, I think, are pretty good parents for fish. One thing, I don't know whether to give them a plus or a minus to ingenuity. So I'm just going to leave this up to the listener. Uh, when food is scarce, piranhas will turn on each other and they will cannibalize their fair game. It's not like a, maybe like a praying mantis, right? Where like any conspecific is just as viable a meal, you know, but if they're hungry, they will go for another piranha. They'll definitely <laughs> try it. And the last one, the last point I gave them for ingenuity, I couldn't really find a lot to back this up. But I did hear that it had been documented that piranhas have been known to chill out in streams. You know how a lot of times trees will grow in sort of a canopy over a stream? Yeah. Piranhas will chill out underneath branches that have birds' nests on them. Because they know that sometimes the baby birds fall out. So they'll hang out under a bird's nest and wait for a baby to fall out. And then they eat it. So the last sort of category I have for piranhas is aesthetics. I give them a six out of 10, which I probably would have given them lower, but you gave the Suriname toad a five. And I feel like I really could not, could not bring the piranha lower than the Suriname toad. I give them a six out of 10. So they have some, some pros. They have these really cool silver glittery scales. Mm. Very pretty in the light. And then, of course, they have that nice red belly that gives them their name. And that's really cool looking, I think. Um, but then the cons are just they have a weird face. <laughs> They're, they've got that big jutting underbite, you know, like their lower jaw sticks out really, really far. And then they have like these nightmare teeth that are really terrifying if you see them. And then the, and then there's just their coloration in general is kind of drab, which I think you see a lot in freshwater fish. Sure. Just kind of like earthy, dark colors. <laughs> But yeah, so six out of ten. They're they're not that bad. They're not they're not ugly. They're not horrible, but nothing beautiful, I think. Sure. They're, they're, they're not super beautiful anyway. So to bring things to a close for the piranha, I do want to talk about their popular cultural okay. reputation. So piranhas have gathered a lot of pop culture attention from their reputation as being these really bloodthirsty killer swarms. Yeah. Like, right. Like dip, dip a cow in the river. comes out a skeleton. That There's something specific about that sure, actually. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but like the idea is like, Oh, don't, don't even step in the Amazon river. Cause you'll get immediately chewed to death by piranhas, you know, yeah. like don't stick your finger in cause you'll lose your finger cause of the piranhas. Sure. So this reputation for ferocity is thought to have come specifically from United States President Teddy Roosevelt's book. Uh, He wrote a book about these experiences he had on an expedition that he went on through the Amazon rainforest. Mm -hmm. And this book was titled Through the Brazilian Wilderness, and it was published in 1914. This was his description of piranhas. I am quoting U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt. 
<laughs> they are the most ferocious fish in the world. Even the most formidable fish, the sharks or the barracudas, usually attack things smaller than themselves, but the piranhas habitually attack things much larger than themselves. They will snap a finger off a hand incautiously trailed in the water. They mutilate swimmers in every river town in Paraguay. There are men who have been thus mutilated." They will rend and devour alive any wounded man or beast, for blood in the water excites them to madness. <laughs> He's not pulling any punches on this piranha. He is really digging in here. <laughs> painted a vivid picture. So this description specifically was prompted by one incident in particular in which Roosevelt had witnessed piranhas devour a cow. Oh, okay. Where the the Brazilian guides that were kind of like taking him on this expedition pushed a sick cow into the river and the piranhas quickly devoured it completely. However, the real story behind this incident is that prior to his arrival, the Brazilian guides that were coordinating his trip, they wanted to put on a show. Okay. They really, really wanted to. I. It wasn't made clear to me whether they were doing this to mess with him or just <laughs> doing it to maybe try to try to impress him. You know, like maybe just give him something to write about in his book. But they definitely wanted to make this point sure. about these piranhas. So what they did was they set up nets and isolated that stretch of river that they were coming up on. And then they caught piranhas from elsewhere in the river and put them into this isolated area in the nets. Mm -hmm. So basically just like saturated this small area with tons and tons of piranhas. And then they put nothing else into those nets. So the piranhas were starving and they were getting hungrier and meaner. Right. <laughs> and so they were, you know, completely starved. So then to prove to Roosevelt how vicious the piranhas were, they pushed a sick cow that was already bleeding. Mm -hmm. So the, I, I saw something that said they actually slashed one of the cow's udders to make it bleed. Um, but then another source said that the cow already had some bleeding as like part of its illness that it was already like having some like blood issues. Anyway, the cow was already sick and dying and bleeding, so they pushed the cow into the river, and that was what set off the piranhas, which had been starved sure. for, like, I don't know how long, but they were extremely hungry. So, obviously, this is not a normal situation for piranhas to be in, but nobody told Teddy Roosevelt that. <laughs> so, all he sees is a cow walk into a river, and it is instantly eaten alive. Well... <laughs> <laughs> So that's the true story about the cow situation. So yeah, so really just they were already in a situation they shouldn't have been in. And it wasn't natural, like it wasn't the way that piranhas normally act. And mm -hmm. that so that it was not a good first impression, which is not the piranhas fault. Uh, so since then, obviously, the piranhas have been the subject of horror movies depicting them as these vicious killers. Yeah. Wikipedia lists the following pages in the category films about piranhas, oh which I will list with their IMDb score. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which is out of 10, by the way. So oh I will boy. give a number and that is its score out of 10 with 10 being the highest quality of movie. I'm going to be surprised if any of these break five. <laughs> uh, do they? 
<laughs> One of them. Uh, two of them do. <laughs> Uh, up first, Killer Fish, 4.1. Mega Piranha, 2.4. Wow. Piranha, which was originally made in 1978, which got a 5.9, remade in 1995 with a score of 3.9. <laughs> it went down by two points. Uh, Piranha 2, The Spawning, 3.7. Piranha 3D, which received a 5.4. It came out in 2010. And then, of course, Piranha 3 Double D. <laughs> you, you know of this one, surely. What is the rating on this movie? <laughs> Out of curiosity. Like the IMDb score? or No, like rated R. Oh, rated... it's definitely rated R. <laughs> it's definitely rated super R. <laughs> um, and th- the Piranha 3 Double D is a reference to what you are assuming it is a okay. reference to. And that received a score of 3.7. <laughs> um, and then finally, Piranha Conda, which received a score of 2.9. Do you want to guess what Piranha Conda is about? It surely isn't a hybrid between an anaconda <laughs> and a piranha, it is. is it? <laughs> it is a hybrid between a piranha and so an anaconda. So is it an anaconda but with a piranha for a face? Yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> so that was what I gathered from the the poster for the movie that was on the IMDb website. Oh, and there's two of them. There's like two piranha anaconda hybrids. So, guys, <laughs> I don't know if y'all know this, but piranhas are fish. Anacondas are snakes. Uh-huh. Snakes are reptiles, which are not fish. Well, <laughs> I don't know who <laughs> wrote this movie or who approved it to be made, but... My B-movie list has just suddenly expanded. <laughs> it's so, so, yeah, uh, the highest rated of all of the piranha movies is 5.9 out of 10. Cinema graphic <laughs> masterpiece. I know. Um, yeah, so that's our little bit of myth busting, I think, for this episode is that piranhas cannot hybridize with anacondas. I'm so sorry to disappoint. <laughs> yeah, that's the myth bust. <laughs> <laughs> so in real life, under normal circumstances, piranhas are not nearly as aggressive as they're made out to be. But there are a few reasons why they would bite a human and they do bite people. Sure. It could include defending themselves if a person is a little too close to them or if they are guarding their nest and a human steps too close to their nest, then they might bite to kind of warn you that you're getting too close to their nest. Mm -hmm. If there is a seasonal food scarcity, sometimes they might get a little hungry and get a little nip. But so it's, it's thought that these piranha bites on humans occur around a few hundred times per year. It's not very thoroughly documented because a lot of times there's just a bite and then people go on about their day and it's not that big a deal. Right. Um, because it's really not the sort of thing you need to go to the hospital about. Uh, they're typically just small nips. And if you do get a wound, it's pretty minor. It's, it's really not that big a deal. Usually I could not find any documented cases of piranha bites causing a human fatality sure but often when humans drown or otherwise die and their bodies find their way into these rivers where piranhas live yeah they're not going to pass up a free meal like they're definitely going to go for it right so a lot of times what will happen is someone will will drown in the river or someone will die and fall into the river and then when the body is retrieved they will see all of these piranha bites on the body mm-hmm. and then th- it will be reported as like this person died because they were eaten by piranhas. Sure, sure. 
but actually they were already dead. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the equivalent of saying, whoa, this person died because of all these fly maggots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So fly maggot infestation that turned fatal. Yeah. So yeah, like they're not going to pass up a meal. They they Now that's not to say that they're totally harmless and they're not going to bother you. Yeah. You know, like they could get you. You sure. still want to be careful around them. But if they do get you, it's, it's really not that big a deal. They'll probably just take a nip and swim away they're not going to swarm you like you don't have to worry about them coming and you know bringing their whole posse and coming to take you down they really don't care that much about you but i think context is important too in that piranha is far from being the only dangerous animal in the amazon river oh there are way (laughs) worse things that you need to worry about yeah Yeah. (laughs) the piranha is is lower on your list of concern (laughs) and that's not to say that they're to be underestimated they are legitimately very strong they have very sharp teeth I don't know. It's like it, part of me wants to be like, oh, you know, you're afraid of them for no reason. It's all hype. They're not really that serious. But they really do pack a serious punch. Yeah, like they can. they they can do some real damage if they want to. But like not at the level that it was portrayed. Like I think yeah. the perception was if there is any amount of piranhas in a body of water, if you go into that water, you come out a skeleton. <laughs> yeah it's really not like that no matter what the situation is (laughs) yeah so it's it's like the the reputation is like in some ways it's deserved because they really can like pick a carcass to the bone they really can eat bone they really can put do all this stuff but that's not they're more afraid of you you are not on their menu. Yeah. Like like you said, when the, the cases of picking a carcass clean are usually because the animal is already dead. Yeah. And also, like, <laughs> most of what they actually typically eat are things that are not going to put up a fight. It's things they can eat in one bite. Sure. They do sometimes take chunks off of other fish. Like, it, it's actually kind of common that piranhas will take nibbles off of other fish or things that live in the water. They'll just take a little bite out of it as it's passing by. Yeah. Um, but they don't do that thing where they, like, swarm something to take it down. They don't do that. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about them that much, but still leave them alone. You can find them in lots and lots of aquariums. Even a lot of just, like, private fish owners have piranhas in aquariums, like, sure. in their homes. So they're not that difficult to find if you really, really, really want want to see one you can go to an aquarium and see one probably uh just you know you really don't need to stress <laughs> over piranhas <laughs> that much i this is one of those things where like that joke about quicksand that quicksand was much less of an issue that you thought it was going to be based on how they were portrayed in cartoons sure piranhas are one of those things you know that's like i really thought i would be encountering the danger of piranhas more often in my life <laughs> than i have which is zero times ever <laughs> Of course, I don't live where they live, but... I would love to visit that area, though. I would. There's some other really, really cool stuff there, but there's also some really... Some things I would not like to encounter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like bot flies. <laughs> Christian. <laughs> anyway. So that's piranhas. Thanks, honey. You're welcome. It's very good. Thanks. I thought so, too. Chomp fish. A little... Just a little munch. <laughs> He's so, so good. 
So thank you so much to everybody who has listened. I know we have a lot of new friends now. Um, a lot of new folks have joined us in the m- recent weeks, and I'm very appreciative of all of you. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just search the title of the show and you will get there. We have a really cool Facebook group. Um, we have a Facebook page and a Facebook group, but I really recommend joining the Facebook group because it's very fun, and that's where we do like the social media like polls and stuff to vote on on the animals that we talk about. If you have an animal species that you want to hear us review, you can submit those to us. My email address is ellen at justthezooabus.com or you can just hit us up on social media. I promise it will get to where it needs to go. And finally, I'd like to thank Louis Zong for allowing us to use his song Adventuring off of his album B-Sides. Yes, thank you so much. Before we get out of here, I did this, I think, on our last episode where I read a review that we had received on iTunes. Oh. Um, And I'd like to do that again because we got another really nice one. Oh, nice. Yeah. And this one comes to us from Sophie Ann. Thank you, Sophie Ann. And it reads, listening to this podcast makes me happy. Like you literally can't listen without somehow ending up with a smile on your face. Ellen and Christian have such a wonderful dynamic with neither talking over the other and both share a great sense of humor. You can tell they're really passionate about all the creatures they talk about. And I find myself interested in things I had never heard of or thought about before. The guest science interviews are also fantastic as you get to hear directly from the people who are at the heart of the research. That said, Ellen and Christian do an impeccable job of researching themselves, especially for not being actual biologists. <laughs> I strongly recommend this podcast to you and to your friends. Also follow them on Twitter for some great extra content and science chatter. How fun. I thought that was really nice. I was very appreciative. <laughs> it's a very good review. And yeah, I've been kind of on fire on Twitter. The memes are dank. So come check us out. <laughs> it's true. You're right. So, yeah, that's all I had for this week. Thanks, honey. Thank you, baby. I appreciate you joining me. Likewise. I hope that people haven't been able to hear our dog snoring. I know I have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's about to be drowned out by the outro music anyway. Bye, y'all. Bye!